Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Gotham City. I'm your host, Levi Rosman. This is a podcast where I talk to people who live in the chess world on the 64 squares, but also beyond them. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Grandmaster Sam Shankland. Sam is a born and raised U.S. Super GM who at times has had to battle with the United States recruiting players uh, from other federations. That is a uh, subject that we definitely get into on this episode, as well as all of his successes as a talented chess player and, in his own words, an extremely hardworking chess player. Sam was also one of the few people who reached out to me directly after I announced my retirement from competitive chess. Uh, he is a super GM. He is a published author, uh, both in print and in digital courses. But honestly, more than anything else, I think he's a super chill and very interesting guy. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Sam, thanks so much for joining. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Uh, so we have obviously a lot of good topics of conversation to start with. You just got back from the Olympiad. I feel like that's a, that's a nice starting point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just take me through take me through how that was. Was that was that the longest you've ever traveled for Olympiad, or is some parts of Russia? Yeah, I mean, I the Olympiads I had played before were in Tromso uh, and Azerbaijan, Baku, and then uh, Tbilisi. I I don't remember for Baku and Tbilisi, but for Tromso I was already in Europe before, so it was not so far. Um, but this one I flew straight from California and only had two and a half days before between arriving and playing so i had a little bit of time to recuperate but it was it was quite a long way away yeah how do you get to chennai from sf is that where you're flying i had a, i had a monster non-stop from san francisco to new delhi that was 16 hours okay and then from there it was just a short connection to chennai but uh it was a long flight and uh the one time i got the crazy long flight is when my seatback tv was not working and there was no in-flight wi-fi so uh, luckily, really yeah. Oh my God. But the guy the next, it's funny, the guy next to me was actually a chess player. Uh, he didn't, not like a real, like he was like 800 or 900 strength, maybe if that, but uh, uh, on the tarmac, while we're waiting to take off, I saw him playing with the Daniel Naroditsky bot on chess.com. And uh, I took a picture of his phone and posted it on Twitter. I was like, oh, the guy next to me is a chess fan. And yeah, he was actually a fun guy to talk to. Um, oh, that's good. Me. Yeah. That's very important because on those flights, it's, uh, did you have an aisle seat? You looked like you had aisle seat, right? Or I had a window seat. Oh, okay. So it was, I'm, it was mirrored. Seats. Yeah. You don't like aisle seats? I, I prefer window. Yeah. Okay. Window on the right side. Okay. Why, why on the right? It's just, uh, uh I just sleep like this. It's just, you know, like uh, you, you, so you slept, you slept on the flight. Yeah. Yeah. Melatonin's a beautiful thing. So is equal. I mean, okay. know, take, take one of those, wake up in India. I mean, not quite cause it's that long, but like. Yeah, I try to sleep on flights. Cause okay, that's. Yeah. Is is there? You have any advice on how to actually sleep on a plane? Because I've never. Uh, bring the travel pillow, like a reasonably good one. Uh, if you have to buy a new one every time, it's worth it. Um, and uh, just you know, pop a Zequil and have one of those little wine bottles that they give you. Like, stick one of those little things, and then take a Zequil and a melatonin, and just hope for the best. I mean, you're not going to get amazing sleep, but it'll get you somewhere. Okay, I had to fly to um, Beijing. That was the longest flight I ever had, and that was for the World Cadet in... I don't even remember at this point. I think it's 2018, but it could have been... I think it was 2019. Uh, yeah. And then I had a connection to uh, Weifang. Oh, no, sorry, Qingdao. There's no airport in Weifang, as far as I know. Uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't sleep. So I didn't sleep for like 30 hours, I think. That's, yeah, that's brutal. I mean... The one thing I would recommend is wait till you're actually in the air to take those drugs. The last thing you want to do is take them anticipating taking off there being some issue and then you've taken them. They say, all right, time to get off the plane, go back to the terminal. Then you're going to have a bad day. 
Yeah, I saw. Yeah, they, that was like um a, like a life pro tip. Like sometimes I go through Reddit and it's like life pro tip: don't take meds until the plane's in the air. And that I, is yeah. very true. I have wow. not fallen victim to not doing it, but I guess I did my homework. Oh, that's fun. Okay, okay. Yeah, my um, I don't know if I should bring this up, but sorry, mom. Yeah, my mom uh was had trouble flying for a long time, and yes, she would she'd get on and. She made sure there was some wine, uh, and yeah, I know people do different stuff. I mean, listen, Drake raps about it, right? Yeah, sure. Ha half, half a half a Zan, and then uh, thirteen hours uh, till I land, but sixteen hours to uh, to India, which is which is uh, even more intense. But everything was like all the stuff I, I was reading. It was like the incredible hospitality. I mean, you echo that. That was it just. Yeah, I mean, there were there were hiccups, like there always will be when you organize a tournament with this many people in it. But I mean. India certainly did their best, especially under these tough circumstances where they had to organize it on such short notice because it had been planned for Russia until uh, that became impossible. And um, and so they, they certainly did their best. Um, you know, the organization was it was decent for sure. Now, specifically about uh, games. So going in, uh, the story was it was the biggest average rating of a team ever, you know, and so yeah. on. Obviously, the Olympiad's a bit of a weird place because why first of all i want you to you to tell me you're the experienced player of these olympiads yeah. why why is it such a wild card why does it seem like teams with much lower average ratings perform exceptionally well like armenia what what goes into that why can't a 27 well, I mean, 50 average first of all when you have like think about any tournament with 200 players in it you're gonna have somebody who just overperforms tremendously the same when you have a tournament with 200 teams in it some team is just gonna overperform tremendously that's just how it happens and some team will underperform uh so i don't think you know, it's, it was not surprising that this happened. The odds of it being any one individual team is not wildly high. If you come into the Olympiad and say, will Uzbekistan win? The answer is probably no. Uh, you know, or will this, will X team wildly overperform? The answer is probably no. But will some team wildly overperform? The answer is yes. And the question is, you know, who is it going to be? And so, you know, it's pretty weird to just have a tournament where like everybody makes their expected score and everybody's rating changes zero. That just doesn't happen. You know, someone's going to be on form and someone won't be. Did you feel going into the Olympiad that that you were gonna? I mean, you were you were gonna you know play like a, a gold medal role. Was that the goal? Well, I mean, obviously, the goal. I was I was certainly optimistic. I mean, um, I don't. I'd been the top scoring player in the history of the U.S. team for the last few years. I made nine out of ten in my first Olympiad. Got an individual gold. I got team gold the next year, and then team silver the next. I, I had a fantastic uh, set of results prior. I knew this would be tougher just because. I mean, playing board five all of a sudden as, you know, like over 2,700 player was a new experience for me. I'd, always, I'd been on like, you know, board four before when back when Hikaru was playing and before Ronin and Dominguez switched. Um, but even there, I was playing board three occasionally. And like, you know, my opponents were pretty strong. Like, I think my last Olympiad in Batumi, I had played with um, I played with Tomshak, Malkumyan, Li Chao. Um, so I played with Li Chao and Mamadov. Both were live over 2,700 at the time. Um, Elkumyan was high 2600s. Um, it was just, I knew I was playing, coming into that tournament, I knew I was going to play down every game, but it wouldn't be substantially down necessarily. I was about the same rating then, about 2720. And, um, and it just like, it, I knew this time it would be different. Just looking at the rosters, especially with no Russia and no China and some guys missing from various strong teams. Uh, I understood that I'm going to be playing way down every game. And uh, somehow I didn't feel great about that, but I, I still wished it could have gone better than it did. Uh, go. How do you prepare for the Olympiad? I mean, you do you ever prepare like for five, six guys who you are most 
concerned about or anticipating to play, or you just you certainly can't do not that. in a tournament this massive. You have no idea which countries you're going to play against. Once you're playing against those countries, you have no idea if you're even going to play. Then you don't know what color you're going to have, and then you're going to not going to know which between two guys you get. So I wasn't preparing for any individual guys, but I tried to tinker my black repertoire to be a little less predictable and a little more combative. Um, one thing I've gotten pretty good at in recent years is just if I want to make a draw with black, um, it's not that easy to stop me. It can be done, but and, you know people do get games with me, and I do lose more often than I win when I'm playing these top tournaments with the black pieces. But this whole just, yeah, kill the game with black, play for 30 minutes or an hour, that works in the Sinkfield Cup. That does not work when you're playing 2550s. You just can't do it. And so I had to tailor my style a little bit, get some lines ready that left a little bit more tension, but it it didn't work very well. Uh, you know, this is something that I used to be good at, but you know, when you play top tournaments only, you know, like the last real open tournament I played where like there were, there was really any game where a draw with black was sort of an unacceptable result was probably the American continental 2018. So it had been like four years since I really had to do that. And I was just not ready to do it. And I, I didn't do it very well. I see. So, Coming into the tournament, my thought was prepare some fun stuff with black, and I did, but it just didn't work. So what can you do? Wait, so I, one thing I'm I'm confused about what you just said, and I was confused about this even watching the tournament. So when they they make the pairings, they post them on chess results. We see which teams play each other, mm -hmm. but we don't see the lineups. Like yeah, that... so the typical thing was pairings were supposed to be up at around nine thirty in the evening Indian time. There were two rounds where they came very late after there was some appeal or something. Uh, but for the most part, they came at 9.30 in the evening, and then we will get board pairings at 10 a.m. the next day. What? That's so... Like... Well, I mean, you think about it, like, one, you, you get your pairing, which team plays against who. The captain then has to, like, look at that and decide which players I want to play. You got to give them some time to do that. Um, okay. But yeah, so they, they had to do the pairing. We, we only got individual board pairings the next morning. Most of the time, I guessed right as to who I was going to play. But uh, yeah, that's sort of how it works. And then, so you get the board pairing at 10 and the round is at 3. Yeah, that's a fair amount of time to prepare. Yeah, you know, I, I know. I'm just, just logistically speaking. Okay. But it did tinker with what I, how I like to work because one thing I do is I have a second who I work with and I always make sure that he's in a different time zone than me from the tournament because one thing I really like to do is uh, before I go to sleep, I say, this is what I want to do. Here's the lines that I want you to cover. And then I will wake up in the morning and have his analysis in my inbox because my night is his day. That doesn't work if you don't actually have your board pairing until 10 a.m. So that did disturb the way I normally work. Uh, was that specific to this Olympiad or is it just a standard practice? Every Olympiad is like that. Okay. That's like tradition or it's like a rule that that's how it's going to work? I, I don't know. It's just every okay. Olympiad I've ever played has been like that. I don't know if it's written into the rules or not, but that's how it's been. I, okay. I, was, I wasn't expecting anything different. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and it's solely the captain's job to determine the lineup? Like, you guys cannot have input? Like, you can't oh, have a discussion? Oh, well, the or... captain is the one who has the, the full power, the power to choose what the lineup is, and he's the only one who's allowed to submit it. Now, I would think if you just say, well, this is going to be the lineup, and you don't listen to your team, you're probably a pretty crappy captain. Sure. Um, so, you know, we have our meetings, and we see, you know, who's feeling, if anyone's feeling sick or anything like that, or, you know, you talk about if someone doesn't want to play, you know, four blacks in a row or something egregious like that. You know, the captain should, a good captain will take their players' uh, cons considerations into account before choosing what the lineup will be, but ultimately he's only the one with the power to put the lineup in.
Okay, understood. Yeah, because none of this, like, I don't know any of this stuff, and I have no clue what it what it might look like at other team meetings. I can't even imagine having a team of four, like a team of five. Or do you prefer that? Do you like a team of four because you're going to play every round? Do you have a good routine? Um, I don't know. I, I don't really mind it either way. I think it's nice to have a reserve player to, to help, you know, balance things out. This Olympiad was a little bit different in that between the five of us, you know, there's, I guess, objectively speaking, I'm probably the weakest player, but the margin is pretty small. And if someone is off form, it's not hard to say, well, Sam should play. I mean, I play, I was the reserve. I played seven games out of 11, which is only just barely under what the average expected would be if you were so, but like in previous Olympiads, you know, let's say when I was, um, when I first made my debut uh, in 2014, when I was like 26, 30 for the US team, you know, I think basically I, I, I made nine out of 10. I had a massive result. No matter how many games I won in a row at 2630, unless Hikaru is like dead and buried and literally in the hospital, they're not going to sit him in favor of me. So, but it was a little bit different this time in that if any one player was off, like you could easily bring anyone in. Right. So, okay. Um, the only, uh, the, only tough question that I have, which obviously I, uh, yeah. I, I already told you I was going to ask. It was this, uh, this moment uh, against against Robert against the yeah, uh, yeah. Against, against the Armenia team. Yeah, if I just I just want to know. Like I, I made a joke actually. This episode that I'm about to mention is not live yet, but I was recording with my former coach um, a couple days ago, and we just between that moment against Robert with like, you know, like thinking he's going to play queen H1 and like the, the Geary moment, I, I was like, I feel like the chess God is like testing you somehow, just like testing your results. You, you even tweeted, you're like, I've, I've been like beaten and battered, but like, I always come back stronger. So, yeah. um, yeah, I just, I just, I, I don't know. I guess take me through it. I feel like it humanizes top chess players when, when moments like that happen, yeah. you know, like, so it started before the game even began. Uh, so I starved before that game because the food in the hotel was making me pretty sick in some cases. So okay. my basic um, and the breakfast food was fine. So my basic MO there was I would eat breakfast at the buffet because that's all there, there was available. And then uh, I had anticipated that I might have problems with the food. And so to every tournament, I bring like protein powders and stuff and like nutritionally complete meals and things like this. Uh, so I had been subsist subsiding on those for the, for my games uh, before the game. I would have like a banana or something as well to go along with it. Um, and then the previous round, I had I had done my thing. I had my shaker and everything. I made my protein powder. And then uh, I accidentally left the top off of my shaker. I came back that night and there were maggots in it when I came. So all of a sudden I'm like, well, I can't eat the hotel food and there are maggots in my protein shaker. So please tell me how I'm supposed to get nourishment. So I basically just said, all right, I'm going to eat a big breakfast and hope for the best. I'm going to eat a late breakfast and hope for the best. So that's what I did. Now, that probably would have been fine if this game was 60 moves, but of course it was 90. So uh, then I was, you know, very, I was more fatigued than I would normally be. And if you think about the anatomy of how I lost this game, you know, I've lost so many games in my life because my brain failed me essentially, because I'm not a good enough chess player or because there was some gap in my knowledge. Even this Geary game where I resigned a drawn position, you could say, oh, that was the gods being unkind. But ultimately it was because I had an incomplete knowledge of chess. And if I were a better chess player, I would have made a draw. This was the first time in my life that I'd ever lost a game, not because my brain failed me, but because my eyes failed me, because I saw a fundamentally different move on the board than what was actually played. And I think a huge part of that was I probably should have just sucked it up and eaten the hotel food that day. Like that would have been a, a big step in the right direction. 
Um, but yeah, it was a it was a very tough pill to swallow. But I did think back to that Geary game um, at this point, and, wh- and I don't know if you know what happened after that Geary game. Do you or no? No, no, I have no idea. By the way, the audience might not even know what we're talking yeah. about. So, so just in this game with Anish, I resigned a drawn position. I, I it was round eleven of Tata Steel. There was a position that, honestly, if I knew nothing about it, I probably would have drawn. Uh, and it's one of those cases where. It's not what you don't what you don't know doesn't hurt you. What you what hurts you is what you do know but is actually wrong. What you think you know but you're incorrect about. And if you knew absolutely nothing and had to figure it out on your own. So I just knew this position with a niche if you want to look it up is a draw when Black's king gets to a8 and it's lost if the king gets cut off. And the I saw in this game the bishop will get to f4 and my king gets cut off on c8. Now that's just wrong. It's still a draw with the king on c8. Uh so I resigned it. But anyhow, it was a real blow and it was incredibly embarrassing. And here I am at my first super tournament after finally breaking through into the world elite. I just remember I got back to the hotel room. I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, you are 27 years old and you are the US champion and you are not going to go cry in the corner because you had a bad day. And then I came back and beat Nepomniachtchi and Kramnik in the last two rounds. So that I just sort of remembered back to that after this Havanistan game. And certainly I did not bring the same level of play in the final games at the Olympia that I did there, but I did uh, finish with a very nice win against Esel uh, Narayanan, who, if I'm not mistaken, was the highest rated opponent I could have possibly faced at the Olympiad. So in theory, that was the best result on paper I could have gotten in the last round. And I won a very nice game. Uh, I was the only winner for USA in that match. Um, so, you know, look, it, it was a very painful pill to swallow, but I'm a big boy. I can take it. It's, you know, nobody gets to the level I'm at without suffering a lot of really severe setbacks along the way. And if they can hurt you, but if they crush you, you will not become a great chess player. That's pretty, that's pretty epic. Have you ever given yourself an intense pep talk and then failed again? Is that... Um, well, you could argue in this Olympiad I failed again. I, I played because prior to the uh, to this last round game, I played with Dragon Solak in this match with with uh, Turkey, and um, basically he's playing exchange Spanish every single game. And I understood that if I wanted to make a draw this game, it would take me half an hour to do so. The exchange Spanish, if Black wants to make a draw, it's, it's really not hard if you're prepared. Uh, and I decided to roll the dice and play a bit more aggressively. So first of all, like it showed that I had some strength of character to not just want to like, you know, quit this run and like, oh, no. all right, I'll make this draw, lose a rating point. You know what? I, what can you do that? I actually really wanted to keep fighting, even with the black pieces, of course, then I got a horrible position very quickly. But uh, so to some extent, if he had won this game, as he should have, it, it would have made it look even worse. But um, no, I mean, I've. I think that at least as I've become older, I have not really crashed and burned too often. It's happened, but it's it's really, really rare. That happened more when I was young and didn't have, you know, some people are just naturally psychologically strong and can deal with this stuff. I'm not, uh, but it did come to me over time. Okay. I like, this is, this is also music to my ears uh, because uh, obviously the, the audience wouldn't really know. Although I've mentioned this here and there, like I think uh, on Twitch, I'm not really one to, you know, if I get a message from an individual to go discussing it, but uh, you, you reached out to me. I, I remember I was, I was sitting on the yeah. couch with my wife, like, I don't even know what I was doing. And I saw a, a Twitter DM from Sam Shanklin and I was like, did I say something? <laughs> like I, uh, first thing I always think is I'm in trouble. I made a joke. I don't no, know. No, no, no. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just that you took the time to write me, uh, extremely thoughtful message just about, you know, uh, overcoming yeah. and, 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 and thinking that you're going to quit chess. And the reason I asked you that last question, actually, it's 
it's good to know what to do when you give yourself a pep talk and fail. I feel like I've been in that situation about 10 times in the last six months, and it definitely doesn't help that everything I do is on social media. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I'm also just realizing that psychologically I've been, this profession that I'm currently in has sort of destroyed that side. Like before I was actually able to bounce back, but now, I don't know, a million thoughts go through your head at the same time when you're at the board. Um, it's interesting that you found it harder to bounce back when you were older than when you were younger. I mean, when I was younger, like what I went through when I was 18, I mean, sure, it sucked. And in some ways it was unfair, but it's absolutely nothing compared to the struggles I went through in my late 20s. And I was just so much worse at bouncing back when I was a kid. Um, it's like, for example, um, I needed to make seven GM norms to become a grandmaster. So like uh, there was one where um, so there was one where I in theory missed the norm. But if any one of my opponents was a single point higher rated, I would have made it. And if and they had I played with Barbosa at the time, who was uh, who was minus 10.5 on his last list, which round last list, which rounded to minus 11. That's wrong. It's live at 0.5. So I brought this up and said, like, this would not have affected the pairings. And this would have like and they're like, nope, no norm. Then there was one where. I didn't play enough US players or I played too many US players because like I played with like Strapunsky and Elvis and all that. And then there was another one, this was the most painful where I, had, I scored half a point more than I actually needed for the norm. Uh, but my round two opponent had just defected from Cuba and she didn't have a federation as a result. And she was like 2100 and so like, you know, I won this game, but like basically a, an early round opponent in a big open didn't have a federation. They said, nope, sorry, eight games. So essentially, I had to make seven norms in the end, and I had to wait, I think, a little, almost a year uh, to get the Grandmaster title after, like, when I would have earned it just based on the results I produced. Now, was this fair? No. But of all the injustices that could befall a human being in the world, this was pretty darn trivial. I <laughs> yeah. did not see it that way at the time. And I threw a big temper tantrum and basically quit chess for, like, nine months because I was too upset with all this. Um, again, this is so much more trivial in terms of like misfortune compared to what I faced later on, but I just reacted so much worse because I was young. I didn't know how to deal with it. And honestly, I think the challenge that I faced there is some of the reasons that it made it easier for me to, you know, recover when I lost this horrible game to Anisha or when I had this, this mishap with Havanisian. Wow. Yeah. I, I did not know that. Um, I didn't know that at all. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure you've probably talked about it in some places, but yeah, I had I had no no idea. Uh, what did you do for the nine months you were away? Well, I went to college, so oh, okay. that was the start. No, but it was funny. Basically, uh, what happened was I just said, "All right, screw this. I'm quitting chess." Blah blah blah. And then I said, "All right, I have three more tournaments that I've agreed to play in. One was the U.S. Junior Championship. One was the U.S. Chess League back when it was alive, which is now given way to the Pro Chess League. And the final was the Berkeley International. So." Uh, the U.S. Junior, this is actually a great story. Um, it was held side by side with the U.S. Women's at the time. At the time, that that was before they held the U.S. Women's and U.S. Championships side by side. But so it was held side by side with the U.S. Women's. And um, I came in as the second seed at like 2500 and Ray was like 2560. And then there was a pretty big drop off to everyone else. And I lost rounds one and two to the bottom two seeds right after saying, all right, screw this, I'm quitting chess. And so obviously that did not inspire me with with uh, with confidence. And uh, then Tata Vabrahamian uh, told me, um, 
you know, don't be so down. You can still win this tournament. You know, you have to admire the optimism, but come on. You just lost the two lowest rated players in the field. And I said, Tatev, you're insane. I just lost the bottom two seeds in a round robin. I'm like, you two points behind the leaders, blah, blah, blah. You're like, you know, if I win this tournament, I'll wear your dress and pose for pictures of them. You just come on, you're insane. Okay, eight wins later, I was regretting those words. <laughs> there are pictures out there somewhere, um, but I can't find them, luckily. Hopefully no one else can either. Oh my God. I actually, this is true. Yeah, I think Eric Rosen came to visit recently and I swear he told me this, but it was, it might've been after a few drinks and he was, oh, now. I did beat him that tournament, so. uh, You beat him that tournament? I did, yeah. Oh, then that's probably, yeah, that's probably the story he told. That's so funny. Yeah, he was like, yeah, you know, he started over two and then he like won the tournament. I'm like, like yeah. wow. No, but so there was that. Then there was US Chess League and I was the only I am on board one. And uh, I um, I led New England to the best season in the team's history. We just cruised through, crushed everyone. And then finally there was Berkeley International. I was like, all right, this is my last one. And so it's funny because I had taken a gap year between high school and college. And, you know, I had been, you know, teaching my lessons all I could just to, like, you know, make whatever money I could to, you know, fly first to Hungary and then to France and all over Europe trying to play these tournaments, looking for these GM norms. I had all this drama where I made a bunch that didn't count. Finally, at long last, in this final Berkeley tournament, I made my final norm in the building where I took my first chess class. You travel the whole world looking for your final norm and you make it in your backyard. You know, it was, uh, it's sort of funny, but um, anyhow, from there, I was like, well, U.S. Junior, I did qualify for U.S. Championship. That's hard for a turn down. Maybe I'll play one more. I came in seated 15th out of 16, finished in third place. I lost in the semifinals to Kamsky when he was an absolute monster. I beat Robert in the match for third place. Robert Hess went back when he was quite a bit stronger than me and was like the top American junior ahead of me. And uh, and so I won 20000 bucks, which was all the money in the world to me at the time. And then uh, from there, I qualified for the World Cup. And I was like, well, I guess I got to play the World Cup. I'm not going to fly to Conti and just start playing. So I um, said, okay, I'll play a couple tournaments in Europe as a warm-up. So I played really well in those two. I went to the World Cup and sent Peter Lecco home in round one. I was like, you know, I really tried to quit, (laughs) but it just didn't let me. (laughs) The break was good for me. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Um, The amazing thing about the World Cup is that every single time it happens there's always upset watch in the early yeah, rounds of course. uh so in the first you, you you knock peter like out in the first round who'd you play in the second round abhijit gupta oh that was abhijit was still playing right and before he went to the bay area i don't remember his whole trajectory but i think he was like abhijit gupta no he's full on indian he was just on the indian olympic team but he he did take a break i'm pretty sure he also I like no didn't he go to mit something like that no not that i'm aware of no there's a lot of Indians with similar names, but Abhijit Gupta, no, he's uh, from Rajasthan. No, he, I think he's just been in India the whole time. I, I, I don't know if I'm ever being in America. No, I'm, there's, I'm pretty sure Abhijit Gupta went to the States for a little bit and was like an author and everything. I, I mean, maybe you just focused on his chess career. I just remember there was, uh, he wrote a book, right? Didn't he write a really th- comprehensive uh repertoire well whatever viewers can confirm it um not that i'm aware of i don't know but uh anyway okay. he, he knocked me out though so he had a really good run he i think he lost to bu shangshi the next round but he was completely winning in the game he lost so it was a, it was a tough pill to solve i was 25 30 i still wasn't ready to like really be fighting for the world cup but uh and yeah. peter leko was what rating 27 20 something he was he was very very strong it was a big upset how did you feel after you felt like Damn, I, I really want to quit chess. 
No, I, I felt good. Like, and, and, and also, I almost beat him 2-0. I mean, like, uh, the, I had black in game one, and I was I got a pretty unpleasant position. Uh, not super bad, but like it was borderline symmetrical pawn structure, and he just had two bishops against bishop and knight. So he's just putting pressure basically forever. And I, I defended really well and earned my draw, but he just wasn't ready to stop pressing, and he got himself low on time, pushed too hard, and ended up losing with white. And, you know, Peter Lecco is a brilliant chess player, but tell the man to go win on command with black. That's that's not really in his DNA. He's the guy who's prepared the Berlin out to move 40 and is really, really good at that stuff and just feels like a brick wall and you just can't break through him. But, you know, so he played the Benoni against me and offered me a draw with some plus four position on the board. And I don't know, under other circumstances, I probably would have played, but I just like, come on, I get through the match. Uh, I didn't really care about winning or making him look bad. I just wanted to advance to the next round. But, uh, yeah, I mean... Prior to winning the match, like, I mean, I was so confident I was winning. Like, he offered me the draw. I did take it, but, like, it took me, like, you know, I, I spent five minutes thinking about it. I didn't actually, like, I was that tempted to just, like, I want my five rating points. But, um, yeah, so I sort of, even, like, pretty early in the game, I knew it was coming. I'm like, yeah, I'm not losing this position. It's just too good. And, um, but, yeah, it felt great. I was really proud of myself. Um, it was certainly, it was the first time I'd beaten a 2700 as well. And to do so in the World Cup, I mean, you know, it was fantastic. Yeah, that is, that is fantastic. A lot of people don't realize that this is uh, very common in chess. Like if if it's one nothing in a best of two and you have to win with black and you take way more of a risk than normal, yeah, a draw is actually kind of common. Like ultimately, they you kind of like spare people, like, you know, spare yeah. people just to knock them out. Yeah. There's also, just like I mean, you have your priorities, and rating is certainly a priority. But honestly, just an extra four hours of rest when you're playing the World Cup might just be worth it. Like, you know, I've never won a World Cup match 2-0. I've played a lot of World Cup matches. I've only ever lost one in classical. I've lost on the other ones. I've lost in tiebreak, but I've never actually won a match 2-0. Well, it's hard, right? I mean, 2-0 generally happens in the case that you mentioned. Like, you have to win with black in the first game. I think it's kind of. Well, you can win with black in the second. If you win with white in game one, and then in, and then with white, they just keep pushing and pushing. And okay, pushing fair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me... Th yeah, I think... I don't know. I mean, actually, the second World Cup I played as well, uh, I beat Ivan Popov in round one. Uh, and we were like... Hikaru was the second seed, and I played him in round two. So we were like right in the middle, like 65 and 60. We're just about the same rating. I beat him in, round, I beat him in the first game with white. In the second game with black... I had a win at the end. It was not easy. It, like you had to calculate, but I saw a forced draw. And my suspicion is, if it were another game, and I had to, act, and I actually th thought like maybe I should be looking for something here. I might have found it, but I saw the draw. I was like, nope, right now, give it to me. And you know, but I was winning at the end. Uh, one one last uh, question about the Olympiad, uh, yeah. just so people are aware. I I I did. Uh... Um, I did kind of ask, you know, the, the point is not, not to create controversy here, but okay. uh, your name is the name that is most closely associated with this narrative that the U.S. isn't really the U.S. team. Um, you can obviously have very legitimate conversations about Fabiano Caruana, who was born here, even though he lived a lot in Europe. And obviously, in, in the case of Hikaru, absolutely, uh, you know, that's all right. But with guys like Levon Lanier... Um, I, I am curious to know your thoughts. Like, and there is a world out there where you could be a board two or three, but you know, like you said, you were a board five. Like, does it? I mean, does it bother you at all? Are like, so the Olympiad, not so much. Um, it's a huge honor to play for the U.S. team, and it would be a real bummer if uh, if I got kicked off of it, and so that you know more of the world could move over. Um, 
but honestly, I've won my medals. Um, first, the first thing I would say is anyone who suggests that Hikaru is not an American can go shove it. Like, I mean, yeah. the guy has only ever flown the U.S. flag for his entire life. He's been in the U.S. since he was three years old. He's had 100% of his chess development happen here. Another thing is the U.S. is certainly a country of immigrants. And that's something that I certainly owe a big amount of my own development to. There's no chess culture in my family. I went through the full American K-12 education system and college. I was never homeschooled or anything. And I never really had much in the way of like formal training from like a top trainer until I started working with Jakob Ogard when I was in my 20s. And so one of the ways that I improved was before I could even travel internationally and just like just playing in like, you know, World Open and Philadelphia and stuff like this. I got to play with guys like Shabalov and Shulman and Akobi and Ramirez and Kachian and Saviano and Ehrenberg and Kaidanov and all these other guys who were originally foreign born and then came to the U.S. And then when they came to the U.S., things that they did included, you know, playing in constantly in American tournaments, which uh, not only gave all these up and coming young American juniors a chance to play with them when they wouldn't otherwise have such kind of opportunities, but also when they were living here for many years and playing opens across America before switching federations, they gave sort of the homegrown U.S. players more than a fair chance. So like, you don't want to lose your spot in the U.S. championship? Come to literally any open turn in America and beat these guys. It's really not that hard. They just put their ratings on the line. So uh, I know there was some griping when, you know, players like, you know, them who, um, who'd lived in the US for years and years and, you know, taught American camps and taught American students and played American terms. There was some griping when they switched federations, as far as I'm concerned, they earned their stripes. Now, there's no doubt that that's not exactly how what we're seeing today. Uh, but I do think that uh, you have to have some level of balance. Um, and I've put my money up where my mouth is on this one. I've written 11 different people uh, recommendation letters for their green cards. And in fact, today, actually, literally today, I got a, re a request from another player who asked me to write him a, a recommendation letter. And I did. Um, I would like to I, I think it's very important that we value the, uh, the immigrants that come to America and really contribute to our country. As for the specific players at the Olympiad who have come and let's just say not done as much of that. Um, I think it's very important not to blame them for the choices they've made. I, if it were up to me, the rules would look very different. Uh, I think USCF's rules have led to some seriously unfair circumstances. I think FIDE's rules have led to some seriously unfair circumstances, but I also think it's very important to place the blame where the blame is due and not on the players who have, you know, made whatever the best decisions could be for their careers. The thing that frustrates me the most, I don't know if we get into this later when you're talking about me going up and down a bit was, um, when I was 2730 and the US champion and, you know, being told by multiple organizers, sorry, we have too many US players, we can't invite you. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And, you know, then I look at their list and it's players who switched like a year ago. And I'm like, I mean, this made me want to you know, throw something through the computer screen. Um, but again, I think while I take issue with how these rules have worked, it's very important not to blame the players themselves is, I guess, what I would say about it. Wow, yeah, that that was uh, that was very well said. I had no idea people are reaching out for green card recommendations. Uh, wow. Yeah, no. Um, I, mean, I mean, when people when people come to the U.S. and contribute to the American chess community, I will throw around whatever weight I have as a U.S. champion, a U.S. Olympian, to try to help them stay in America. Yeah, no, I just didn't. I mean, the green card process actually. I mean, it's obviously very very daunting. Um, my my wife and I we we got married. We have to go through it. We just basically sit. You basically just sit and wait. One day the government calls. They're like, "All right, come prove you're married." <laughs> uh, in this case, yeah. it's you know, come over for chess. Uh, yeah, that that was a fun generation of players. I, I I know what you're talking about. The former Soviet Union guys. There were so many of them, and then they all became. But it's it's not just former Soviet guys. You know, 
I mean, Ramirez, Saviano, they're not Soviets. I mean, Ramir uh, Alejandro. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, no, I, I know, but but like I'm talking like Gulko, uh, yeah. Yermolinsky. There was like a, a lot of them that were that that were I yeah. guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I know. Yeah, Alejandro uh, for sure. Uh, I didn't realize I didn't realize Saviano was U.S. I actually I, maybe no, I, I played him in U.S. Championship in like 2009. He's been he's been playing for the U.S. flag for a oh. very long time. I didn't realize. Yeah, because I, I just always associate him with with like Philippines, like the same way. Like I th but Becerra also is now U.S. I think he right? was also in 2009 U.S. Okay, Championship. yeah. See, there you go. I don't know also, for some reason. <laughs> also, some like anyone who switched like prior to it being really profitable to switch to America, you're pretty confident these people switched because they love the country, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. Uh, that's so, oh, that I did I did not realize. Um, there, but that that happens. I sometimes I'm like thinking I'm like wait that person represents. Okay, I thought it was like a totally different place. Um, well, I've always made a joke that I would go to the U.S. Virgin Islands. I'd be their board one. Uh, maybe we'll, my friends and I will be their boards two and three, and then we'll just go to an Olympiad. Uh, but that has uh, that has yet to happen. Um, but okay, you know, I listen. I, I I appreciate the answer. You're like I said, you you are you are the guy that people are like, oh, I feel so bad for him, and like you know, Sevian Zhang also. Uh, it's, it's definitely been tough. Uh, there's been a lot of really heavy negative impacts, you know, when I'm being told I can't play super tournaments because they have too many U.S. players and I end up playing 40 consecutive games against lower-rated opposition and drop from 27.30 to 26.80. That does not feel great. But again, what I would just reiterate is it's very important not to blame the players. You have to look at the rules and not the players themselves. Yeah, I obviously wanted to ask you about some of those top events. Uh, what has been your experience breaking in? Because from an outsider's perspective, and really what I've heard from other guys is uh, if you're in the top 15, top 20, you get you expect invitations to events like Tata Steel and so on. And <coughs> you you have had to like blossom into 2700. You were not, you know, a Nodirbeck, for example, just like now everyone's like, oh, this guy's going to get invited everywhere. So... What was the experience like? Did you have to sit and wait? Did you have to contact them? Like yeah, so I didn't, I didn't like crash straight through the way everyone else does. I'm not some brilliant talent. I think, you know, once upon a time, I was sort of upset when I was growing up in America and everyone viewed, you know, Robson and Hess and Letterman as bigger talents than me because they were, you know, higher rated when they're, you know, little, about the same age, a little older for Alex, a little younger for Ray, but about the same. Now I wear that badge with honor. Uh, I proudly accept that I'm not wildly talented, but I've trained really hard. I've trained really smart. Uh, and... What I finally broke through, it helped that it all happened at once. So, for example, I remember when I won the U.S. championship. And so I won the U.S. championship with, like, the best score in the tournament's history ahead of the world's number, you know, two, six, and seven or something with eight and a half out of nine, a performance rating of, like, 2885 or something disgusting like that. And I that was the tournament where I broke 2700 as well. So I'm like, finally, new 2700 U.S. champion. And I wrote to a super tournament at that moment and said, you know, do you think you could invite me? And they said, oh, you know, we're, congratulations so, so much. How far you've come. We haven't really decided the list of the players yet. It's still some time away. But then uh, I crushed it at the Capablanca Memorial just a week later, jumped to like 27-17 and finished with plus five. And then, uh, and, then when I, uh, and then I wrote back again and they said, yeah, you know, this is looking really good. I think this is promising. We should, we'll probably be able to invite you. And then when I won the American Continental like a week after that and jumped to like 27, 27, they're like, all right, let's invite him right now so we don't have to pay him as much. That's, <laughs> but, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so because like in the space of one month, like two months, basically, I jumped from like uh, 2670 to 2730. Uh, that's the invitation started coming then. So like, I played Hainan Danshu, which was a very nice event. I got to play a six game match with Peter Svedler and I got to play Tata Steel. Those were the three. 
I, and I also got to play um, a 960 rapid event in St. Louis and then a champion showdown rapid event, which were not like, you know, real opportunities to like jump even higher in the rating list, but they were, you know, top premier events, very well paid and, you know, very nice. But it, those were the three events, the, uh, the Mattress Fiddler, Hainan Danshu and uh, Tata Steel that I got to play. So most of those top events, they they may have a public prize fund, but a lot of people just get paid to participate. Is that sort of like how the top players make their make their money? Or... Yeah, it, it depends event by event. Uh, Hainan Danshu did not give me any money. They just had, you know, I, I like it better when the prizes are just public and no one gets any money. It's just like, you know, here's what you get. It's There's no, you know, behind the scenes negotiations. It's just, you know, prizes are public information. I like it better that way. Tata Steel is much more about appearance fees, but, you know, it, it depends tournament by tournament. Okay, yeah, th this is what I've heard, and I don't exactly understand how that works. Like, I don't know if other sports, for example, like a tennis, where it, it, it ultimately is a tournament where there is a winner, but I don't know if there's participation money involved. Yeah. How I, do you I even gauge probably. How do you even gauge what you get as an appearance fee? Be like, what is, is, is it like how many eyeballs you bring? I mean, I don't... Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. I just know that what I've been offered and, you know, what I say yes to and what I don't say yes to, uh, or what I've sort of made up my mind about that. Um, in general, uh, tournaments just aren't that much money for me compared to like, for example, you know, selling chessable courses or something. And uh, so mostly for tournaments, I'm much more interested in how strong the opponents I'll play. Now, obviously I would prefer more money than less. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I won't. And, you know, if, if the money is just really bad, like I'm not going to play, but, uh, but like the biggest thing for me is just, you know, if you bring me into a tournament where the average rating apart from myself is 2,800 and they say, okay, but you know, we'll cover your expenses, but will you play for free? I mean, honestly, I'd probably just say yes, but of course there's no tournaments that strong and the ones that were once that strong, they're not going to invite me. I, so one thing I'll never understand because I don't, I don't have a killer competitive mindset, even to this day in a title Tuesday, when I get a 3000 opponent, I'm ready to lose. But if I win, holy shit, it's a YouTube highlight, you know, um, mm -hmm. Did you ever have to go through the process of ad like adapting from just crushing 25 and 2600s to like, okay, I'm playing the super elite best players in the world. Like, oh my God, you know, now I, all my hard work is going to pay off. Like I'm going to beat oh. them, you know, or was it? I was never like blown away like that. I mean, so for example, if you look at, you know, me playing in Tata Steel or the Sinkfield Cup, while I had never consistently been playing with the best players in the world over and over and over again across one tournament, it's not like I had never played them before. You know, I'd go play with the U.S. Championship, you know, I'd play with, like, Hikaru or Caruana or so in, like, three of these games. Okay, that's only three games out of 11, sure, but it's not like I'd never played with these guys of that level before. I was used to it. It just meant you had to play them one after another, which was, you know, a little bit different. Is it any different to play Magnus than it is anybody else? I keep... I... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've only played him twice in classical chess, uh, and neither game was really that interesting. Both games, uh, I was white. Both games, he shut me down pretty easily. Just both games, I started with d4, and both games, he played some version of Queen's Gambit, declined, and both games, he was sort of slightly worse, and then very, very gradually outplayed me, but certainly not nearly enough to win. Um, you know, if he had been in a more combative mood, or if he had had the white pieces in either of these games, and we had more of a fight, then, uh, you know, maybe I would have felt differently. But I just, neither of the games that I got to play with Magnus were great games for him to showcase just how strong he is. Because having worked with him a little bit, I prepared him for two world championship matches. I mean, and having played with him a little bit and played with all these other guys, I mean, I'm fully aware he's so much better than everyone else. But these games were not the ones where you got that sense. I mean, at least not in my opinion.
Wait, I'm sorry. Is that even public? What? You worked you worked with on Team Magnus for a couple of World Championships? Yeah, yeah just... this, this is well known. I worked with him for the 2014 match with Anand and the 2016 match with Karyakin. Oh, I did not. Yeah, oh, so fantastic. I haven't worked with him many years, but yeah, I, I worked on his team for that. And honestly, I did very, very little work with him. Most of my interaction was with the other guys on his team with Peter Heine. But, uh, oh. but it was a great experience for sure. I guess everything was far less documented compared to now. And back then I was not involved on chess social media anywhere near as much. So there was no cute training footage released on YouTube, you know, like they uh, did this year. Um, yeah, the, the extent of it was Magnus mentioned in a tweet, the, you know, thanking me and, you know, Jan Ludwig and Niels Cornelius and stuff like that. That was about it. Ah, so you were with Niels. Oh, that's funny because with I, I guess I discussed it with Niels, but we never talked about the, the entire team. So yeah. I, oh, wow. Uh, and was it like specializing in certain variations and certain lines or? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was, yeah, to a degree. I mean, like we, we checked a lot of stuff. Um, and then the stuff that I guess Magnus liked the most was what he played. Certainly, I, I think most of the stuff I did did not show up in the match, but there was definitely some stuff that did. But that that's always the case, right? And then for a year after, it's like, oh, this was for the match. Like you always see some prep use somewhere and... Um, yeah. You kind of see that storyline. Uh, the best experience I had on his team, and I, I know this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit to another topic that you had in mind, but I so just... in, uh, in March, I guess it was May 2016, I was whisked off to the jungle for a reality TV show. Now, in March 2017, that show aired. So there was, and I wasn't allowed to say anything about it in between. So there was this 10-month interim period where I was on the show. I knew everything about the inter industry, but, you know, I was sworn to secrecy and nothing and nobody knew anything. So at the in September 2016, when we had the camp prior to preparing with Karyakin, Jun Ludwig Hammer was not there. And uh, we made some BS email account. We took the original email I got from the casting company and we, we changed the show description, the names, and we said, Dear Jun Ludwig, we're looking for a brilliant chess player to cast at a TV show where we pair up, you know, beautiful women and nerdy men to compete in challenges together. And we went on and on and we got him all ready for his interview. And he, you know, shows up to the Skype interview or something. We turn the camera like, hello, this was the best part of play, being on Team Magnus. And, you know, he's just looking at us he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And he had apparently told a Norwegian newspaper about it, too. And so they were going to publish an article the next day. What? Wait, how long did this prank last? Like two and a half days, not that long. Oh, okay. I mean, this is sounding, wow. Well, Jun Ludwig works fast then. I thought he, like, scheduled the whole thing. Oh, my God. No, no, we, we, he was all ready for his interview. He had no clue. It was, he was just his his friends trolling him, but uh, that was the best part of Team Magnus. We had so much fun with that one. Wow, that's... To Ian Ludwig's credit, he took it really well. He just paused, he was like confused, but then he's like, that's actually very funny. <laughs> his exact words. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely see Ian Ludwig. Yeah, wow, that, that that is handling it really well. I'm not, I would have been pretty... Uh... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I would have enjoyed a prank like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. I remember you telling, was it Dina that, I think, at the at the Grand Prix or Yeah, yeah, I interviewed with her and I told her that story, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was I was watching some of the some of the Grand Prix uh, interviews just to see like I don't want to ask you something overly repetitive. Um right. yeah, wow, I completely forgot about that. Yes, you were on the show. You said you didn't rec film the show for 10 months. You just filmed it for couple weeks yeah i mean they were they were filming like the winning team was out in the jungle for i think it was 23 days i was sent home on day eight but uh but yeah then there was you know 10 months of i mean they edited it for like four months and then it was ready and then they said it will only air six months later so 
Yeah, they, it aired in March uh, 2017. Yeah, how did that happen? How did you get the call for that show? Like, chess players well, don't have managers, so how did they... Yeah, no, I just got a, my, an interview, like, contact form from my website. You know, someone wrote me a letter saying, you know, we're... We're doing this new show. We'd like to cast a great chess player. You know, at first I thought this was probably a prank, but I looked up the number in the casting company, which was real. And of course, we had chosen that exact same number in casting company for the email for Ian Ludwig. But they wrote to me and they said, "Okay, well, uh, we'd like." To, they they interviewed me over Skype, and then they said, "All right, we'd like to fly you to Los Angeles for your next interview." And then this was right before 2016 U.S. Championship. Like the interview was going to be like you know Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then I would fly out Monday morning and be playing on Wednesday in, in St. Louis. And so, um, and then the show was supposed to film right after. So I was like, all right, well, this will be interesting. I'll get a free ticket to St. Louis out of it. So uh, I, I went there and I interviewed with them and they like locked me in the hotel. They're like, you're not allowed to see any of your friends in Los Angeles to do anything like, you know, just order whatever food from the buffet, from like the restaurant downstairs or whatever, DoorDash, like we'll bring it up to you. And so they locked me in the hotel, except when I was interviewing, they asked me a bunch of questions. They gave me a swim test and stuff. And then, um, then uh so they sent me on my way back to st louis and i just didn't hear from them for like you know two weeks while i'm at the u.s championship I'm like all right well that was interesting you know nothing happened and then like the day before like round 10 or something which was just like you know just before the term was ending and like you know i got a text message from a number i didn't recognize that said we need your chest circumference for your life vest and your uh, head circumference for your helmet and that was just it. And I was like, okay. And like four days later, I was off in the jungle. Wow. And that was in Fiji, right? I saw in Wikipedia. Yeah, it was Fiji, yeah. Why, why did you agree to this? Like, I just... I, you... I thought it would be fun. It was interesting. Okay. And, uh, and it was half a million dollars to the winning team, which was a lot of money. And of course, I understood I'm probably not going to win. There were 10 teams and I, I did not win. We were the third team eliminated. But, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. And I, I'm glad I did it. it was an, I learned a lot. Um, and yeah, it was great. Are you compared to what they show in in like your famous highlights where you look super intense and like you don't want to like dance when they have this like it, was that <laughs> anywhere near accurate or did they tell you to embellish a little bit or can you not even Well that, that did stuff? happen and I'm not wildly proud of that moment but okay. uh, no it was there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes but like a huge amount of it was just foraging for food which is not really interesting to watch uh, or trying to build shelters and that was a big, big part of it. And just sort of sitting around and waiting for challenges. I mean, um, the, they provided us with water just because if they didn't, it's like basically a hundred percent of our time would have been filtering water and like, there's just no time to interact with other cast members and stuff, but they didn't give us any food. So we had to forage for that, but you know, it was, uh, a lot of it was not wildly glorious, you know, building fish traps and stuff like this, that wasn't shown at all. And, you know, things like that, um, building shelters, you know, that get torn down in the middle of the night when it starts raining, you got to build it again, you know, just eating disgusting things because there's nothing else to eat, you know, ants, termites, scorpions, you know, stuff like that. Did you get a lot of mosquito bites? That sounds like... Yeah, I did. And in fact, the worst one I got, actually, uh, I was asleep. I'm trying to remember exactly how this happened, but basically, like, I was sort of curled up like this and my knees were bent. And so like I got a mosquito bite where my knees were bent and there was nowhere for it to expand. So it got like really like, cause yeah. Cause like normally I guess the mosquito bites will expand up a little bit, but because my skin was so tightly compressed when I was like, you know, sleeping really tight, it just like expanded like outwards instead. So it was really flat and really wide and it was, oh. yeah. but, 
but yeah. Hey, good Lord, it might have not even been a mosquito at that point. <laughs> I don't know. It could have been some some, some jungle. Uh, I'm sure. Do they have to clear like intense medical waivers because? The, I yeah, I mean, uh, there were a lot of vaccinations that I was required to get while I was in Los Angeles uh, for Fiji that were specific to Fiji. Uh, that I guess for like local diseases that you would find in the wild there. That even I guess local. I guess it would be Fijians or. I would be a Fijians, Fijians, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but I guess even locals there probably wouldn't have to get because they're, you know, living in civilized quarters. But like, yeah, they, they, they made us get some jungle uh, vaccinations. That's amazing. It's fair, safe to say you, you don't speak to any of the cast members or any stories. Oh, of I, having... Well, not as much now, but like we had a, a cast reunion in Los Angeles when the show, like for the last episode, we all came down to Los Angeles for a cast reunion to watch it together. And then even now, like we had another reunion after that for a few of us. And even now, like I talked to, I talked to them off and on. I mean, there were some that I got along with uh, better than others, but the whole premise of the show was they paired up, they took 10 like cool, interesting people from the real world. So they got me as a chess player. They got, you know, an Atlanta Hawks cheerleader, a comedian, you know, they got like all sorts of former Miss Wyoming, you know, like all sorts of different kinds of people from the real world. And they paired up, paired up each of us with an expert survivalist. And so uh, someone who can like, not just like, oh, you know, I, I like to take my kids out camping, but like, no, like, you know, here's a knife and a compass and it's 200 miles to the road. They'll see you in a month, like, and they will actually get there. Um, and so they had a very diverse cast in terms of the novices, just because they got to, you know, get people from all walks of life. But when you're looking for people who are that good at survival skills, it's pretty hard to find a diversity and almost all of them were ex-military. And so I actually got to hang out with a lot of these sort of ex-military types who, you know, I'd never met any, you know, veterans before, but I, I thought they were very reasonable people and I, I really got along with a lot of them well. And, you know, and if any of them were in town and called me, I would certainly meet them today. So, yeah. Well, so that's, that's what I was hoping for, actually. I was, hope, I was hoping to hear that it was a overall good experience and, uh, yeah. you know, pe people stay in touch. I have heard that, yeah, those reality shows, I only like to watch cooking reality shows. So <laughs> House Kitchen uh master chef etc um yeah. yeah and uh i i they have to live in like the same they have to live in a dormitory and so if you make it all the way to the end after 20 you know if there's 20 participants to start you make it to the end i don't know how long filming takes but they apparently don't have phones like you're not allowed yeah. to have a phone in the dorm which is crazy to me that is just well we didn't have phones or pillows or walls or ceilings yeah, but you were in a jungle like, at least they didn't sequester us like i know for like survivor or some of them that like once you're out they will sequester you or something until like the show is shown but for me like they did some exit interviews with me and sent me home the next day once after i was eliminated yeah i don't that's just that's like terrifying to just seem like you can't have any sort of connection granted you know if i had a more traditional career i might not think that but now just the thought of like disconnecting it, from technology it was actually funny because right after the u.s championship that's when they select the olympiad team and so I, uh, I knew that I was gonna get an invitation to the Olympiad. I knew I had qualified and I knew that I wasn't gonna be able to answer this invitation. So I had to use like uh, John Donaldson and my father as my proxy. I'm like, all right, if they give me this much money, uh, say, I told my father, if they give me this much money or more, say yes, anything less, ask John and do whatever he says. And then, uh, but then luckily my invitation came like literally two hours before they were taking us off to the jungle. So while I was in my hotel room, I still got to sign and send it off. Oh, and you never, you, to this day, do you you don't do the whole like manager thing? You just manage. I have a manager. Oh, okay. Now I do, but okay. only after I became U.S. champion and was when it made sense. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, because I, admittedly, have 
in certain cases had to like Google people and, and they all have managers. It's like, you know, yeah. every top GM, it seems like has a random European guy managing them. And no, no, mine is Doug Eckert. You probably know him. Really? Yeah. He's been managing me for a few years. He's been doing a fantastic job too. I had no idea. Yeah. I've been at so many tournaments where he's, he's a nice guy. I've never played him, but it seems like a nice guy. <laughs> he's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, wow. I had no clue. I, I know um, he he was doing some stuff like or uh, maybe like posting some stuff about the fact that like he's a little bit older, but he's uh, he's like pushing for and he's still training just yeah. as a... well, he retired in his early in his mid 50s. So he has a bunch more time to dedicate to chess now. And he certainly is playing better than he was when he was working. So uh, do you train him at all or? Yeah, no, I, I mean, whenever I'm in St. Louis, I try to stay for like a day or two extra and hang with him and, and work with him. Oh, that's amazing uh, because I, I know you have some, I know you have students. I didn't realize that you still do as much coaching f full time. Is that still absolutely part of your profession or is it just a yeah, select few? Yeah, I mean, not like, it's certainly my playing comes first always. And I never teach like during tournaments, for example, or anything like that. And usually even three days before a tournament I won't, but like, I'd probably teach something like 10 to 12 or 13 hours a week. It, you know, it, it's certainly not so much that it interferes with my training, but like, yeah, it, I certainly, do, I would never teach so much that I feel like it's cutting into my training hours, let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Got it. it you've probably built, the, it's like relationships with really talented kids who have been 21, 2200, and then they just... Yeah, I have some, I have young students, I have adult students, uh, honestly. I just charged some, I, I just figured out how many hours I wanted to teach, decided to charge an absolutely ridiculous rate to see... Uh, uh, to try to cut down the numbers a bit. Like if I wanted to charge, if I wanted to teach for like a buck, 150 an hour, like I'm sure I could just fill my schedule, you know, eight hours, mm -hmm. a day, seven days a week. And that's not what I'm interested in, but you know, I managed to find a sweet spot where I, I don't get more inquiries than, than I'm able to fulfill. Yeah. See, you know, what's funny. That is a very, uh, that's like the, obviously a very good way to do it. Uh, where you will only commit a certain amount of hours per week at a rate you'll be happy with. Uh, what I sometimes talk about in, on, uh, on stream, and this is, sounds disgusting to people, is people who are half your rating have that mm -hmm. problem in New York City. So there's people who can get two, three hundred bucks an hour in New York City yeah. as like 13, 14 hundreds, which, which kind of blows my mind. But there's a market for private school chess education. Yeah, uh, well, well, what makes a good teacher is not necessarily what makes a good player. And I think that... You know, if you were trying to train a bunch of eight, nine hundred level players in some private school in New York, my suspicion is any of these people you're describing would probably just be better fits and be better trainers than I am. Um, oh, yeah, sure. I, I mean, but it's it is uh, it's absolutely a career that like I know I always say it, it comes with the prerequisite of you have to have like good classroom management, good people skills. Uh, it yeah, takes a, <laughs> yeah. you can't you can't teach an 800 how to like an England Gambit eight move checkmate trap or uh well, I don't know what that is. England Gambit is D45, right? Yeah, D45. I don't point... know where the checkmate trap is, but I do know how to bust it. So Okay. See, okay. that's why I'm an ineffective teacher for these schools. Uh, there you go. See, it's, it's, it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, so y y one thing that you mentioned, I, I, I probably knew this, uh, but I didn't know this at the time. Obviously, in the last like six months of playing, I played talented kids. You had mentioned that you might have even taught some of them. So I'm yeah. curious... If you're a coach and you're preparing against a kid against me, what's the scouting report? Um, so I tell them that you're someone who doesn't put as much time into training as you could, which is obvious just because you have other things. Yeah, you can on. insult the, whatever. I just want to know. <laughs> I said that you, 
you basically like to have um, have your kinds of positions. You want to have uh, sort of sidelines outside of theory that you actually know pretty well, and you care much more about being comfortable in the resulting position than than other stuff. And that I think you don't react well when you're hit with surprises, even if they're not that great. Uh, these were things I said. Um, I also said that if you have a chance, if you have a bad position, complicate the game. Otherwise, don't try too hard to do so. I thought that you struggled a bit when you feel like you should be winning and the position is complicated. Not even as much so as like, well, it's just a complicated position. I'm not sure what's going on. But when it's complicated, but it should be good for you, I thought you were struggling a bit and maybe psyching yourself out. or. Oh, Jesus, that is literally the weakest spot of my game. <laughs> How did you know that? <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of these guys have played with you a bunch. Uh, so okay. you know, people play like these you know, GM Norm Round Robins or stuff, they've played with you a bunch, you know. And so I, I've seen that a bit. And, you know, every now and then if I'm really bored and have nothing else to do, I'll follow the I'm not a GM championship and watch what's going on there. So I've seen that occasionally, but, you know. And plus, I don't know if, you know, we did play once upon a time. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I... So I was doing research on that game, uh, and I think it was going to be for some sort of YouTube video, but I had played someone, I played Liam, who was the highest rated player I ever played. I played Liam in World Open. Uh, no, he's a little higher than me, so that is... Yeah, I, I, was, I wasn't going to make a video on like the second highest rated player I ever played. Also, there was nothing special about that game. Like, inter like I just, yeah, I'm, it was I a pretty just... boring game, you know, not much going on. Eventually, I, squeezed, I tricked you somehow, not much, I mean... I don't know, but but I remember like you played even in the opening, like your whole bishop e6 thing in the Trumpowski. I was like, oh, it's like kind of clever. I but I also probably played much worse because you were twenty seven hundred. I was like, I'm gonna lose. No, I was twenty six thirty. Come on, I was not that strong when I played you. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, in my in my chess. memory, you were twenty seven hundred. So that's this was millionaire chess. No, this was millionaire chess twenty sixteen. I want to say it was the yeah, first yeah, the first one, one, the first one, yeah. So I think it no, twenty fourteen, twenty fourteen, twenty fourteen millionaire. Yeah, yeah. Then I was only twenty six thirty. Oh, okay. So yeah, then Liam was definitely much stronger than me when you played him. Oh, see, this whole time I thought you were the second highest. You were twenty six thirty. Are you? Wow. Oh yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that that means that my memory is just bad because in, this whole time in my mind, Liam was the strongest player I ever played, and you were the second strongest player I ever played. Well, it and depends that, how you count it. I mean, now like Liam and I probably have about the same peak rating. So yeah, but, but I mean, like at the, at the time, time because of the game, you may yeah. have been stronger than me in between. But yeah, like. Uh, but I, probably it's just because Millionaire Chess was right after my first Olympiad Tromso where I just made 9 out of 10 and killed everybody. So I just made all the headlines. So probably that's oh, maybe. why you were intimidated. Not because I was 2,700. Well, I was, I was, yeah, I was like on board five <laughs> to start yeah. the tournament. Uh, how did you do in that event? Like, what were your, your memories of that event? It was a crazy uh, event. It was a fine tournament for me, not an amazing one. Um, I beat you in round one. I beat Irina Crush in round two. I made... I made a bunch of draws and like, I think I drew rounds three, four, five, six, all against like 2550 types. Um, seven and eight, I beat uh, Shabalov and I beat some German 2500. And then round nine, I drew with Naradinsky. It was a pretty average event for like a 2630 guy, you know, like making a plus two, plus three against 2500s or something. Do you have any grandmaster memories of that event? Because I just remember it was supposed to be this completely massive Vegas event, a million dollar prize fund. And it only oh. was able to last for three events, and then obviously... Yeah, the... I was actually very saddened that this event uh, disappeared. Um, 
It's a format that I certainly don't want all events to, to mimic, but I like having one. Uh, you know, it felt like it was a chess tournament, but, you know, played more under like a poker structure, I guess, where, you know, there's like huge prizes and everybody has to buy in, including grandmasters. And what I had actually found was most of the Americans that I spoke with were very happy with this event and the Europeans were less so. Uh, it was not, the, the Europeans were more risk averse for whatever reason. Um, I don't know, but I mean, obviously not all of them, Europe's huge. So there were plenty of Europeans that came, but I know some Europeans that I had spoken to in tournaments I had played in the preceding months, like was like, yeah, no, it just feels like a lottery. But I mean, to me, like, I was like, lottery, what? Like, you know, I mean, 50th place is $2,000 and it's $1,000 to enter. And I'm like number 50 in the world. So like, I mean, or, or at least uh, maybe I wasn't that strong at the time, but it just felt like, you know, sure, you might not win a hundred grand, but do you really think you're just going to like burn through a thousand? I don't know. It, it didn't, I, I really like those events and I'm, I wish they would come back. Uh, I know Maurice really did his best, but you know, if, if no one, if not enough people show up, it is financially insolvent, of course. I, I have, I have some pretty, uh, Pretty fun memories. I only went to two. The first one where we played, I was uh, too young to even walk in casinos. Oh, no. Uh, okay. And I stayed at like a motel. So on the strip, which was disgusting. Oh, great. Uh, and the 2016, I, I think I made my second I Am Norm. Uh, or maybe, yeah, something like that. And my round eight opponent on Millionaire Monday forfeited. And I, the Arbiter didn't have an answer for me if... I was good enough to get the norm and I ended up getting an eight round norm or a nine round norm in eight games um, because yeah. in round nine, I drew Sam Sevian, which was nuts. Uh, yeah. But that oh, was, I, I think I sent him to, I beat him that year. In, oh, in, uh, in, in 2016. I beat him that year. So I sent him to you. Oh, that's good. Thank you. He was, he must've been, yeah, he must've been tilted. I got the highest possible uh, individual I could have played. Uh, yeah. How many points did you have in round six of that event? After I beat Savian in round six, so that was I think I had four and a half out of six. Yeah, because there's a famous picture. I had four points out of five as a twenty three hundred. I had okay. beaten Stripunsky, Barbosa. Actually, it may have been round five. All I remember is I really needed a draw with Black against Zhuzhen Chow. I was exhausted after the game with Savian in the morning, which was very long. And I should have drawn this game, but it was very, it was a tough defense and I lost. I just remember that's, so it may have been, I played seven and six in Jujin Chow or seven and five in Jujin Chow and six. It might've been that, but. Yeah. yeah, that, that, that tournament was the probably highlight of my chess career. I, I beat Stripunsky, lost to Brazon, and then I beat Barbosa and Gorovets. <laughs> so, that's good. Yeah, yeah I was 23, good. I was like four out of five and I was playing Cordova and I was like not losing, but I ended up losing the game. Uh, and then in the next round, I lost to Yaroslav Zherbuk in a plus four position. So like, I don't know what was going on in that event. Um, but yeah, but I still think Atlantic City is the most depressing place on earth. Like I have to say, it's yeah. it was uh, it was it was rough there. Um, but uh, no, I agree. It's a fun event, and I remember I think I got like some disgustingly low place, and I they PayPal'd me nine hundred fifty bucks. So oh, there you go, covers your entry fee. Yeah, it covered. I mean, it covered almost everything. It was it was uh, pretty wild. Um, that was a uh, that was a fun time. Um, la last uh, last thing I wanted to ask about. Actually, I'm shocked I wasn't even able to uh, to ask about it sooner. But uh, there was some post, some Reddit post. That I think Hikaru also got into it. You were on the team uh, with Hikaru for the candidates. You weren't in Madrid though, right? You had this whole time zone thing. Probably the, the funny thing is actually um, with Hikaru, uh, I never actually heard his voice. 
like all of our correspondence was by you know various chats and text messages and then for the files i would send them more by email um but no i did my best to help him out i tried to just do analyze the stuff he told me a lot of it didn't show up some of it did um but no i mean you know i certainly have a lot of respect for hikaru i mean he was a huge hero to me growing up he's only four years older than me but because i started late in chess i was like 11 when i played my first tournament and he's already 15 he was a grandmaster he was like you know and he's him and Fisher are the two players to have like you know grown up in the U.S. and reached at higher levels in chess than I am. So I was really happy to help him out, especially after like he had he had played really badly for a couple of years and then was inactive for a couple of years while he was doing all this streaming and the and the pandemic hit. And when he came back and just killed everyone at the Grand Prix and then was off to the Canada. So I was really happy to help. I mean, I I did the analysis I was told and I did it to the best of my ability. But the funniest part of this was um yeah so we had agreed on a price and then. Uh, and so, you know, we're thinking, what's the best way to get paid? And I sent him my bank details. If anybody says, oh, I see that you're playing a simul in New York City. I'm just going to, I have one of my sponsors lives there. I'm going to have him bring you a check. I said, okay, fair enough. So I played the simul in New York City. This guy gives me the check. This is before the candidates even started, but, you know, he paid me in full, which is great. This guy shows up, gives me this nice large check to, to help out. Then he comes and beats the crap out of me in the simul. He was the only one who beat me. But he's like 1800, just like crushes me in like 20 moves. And I was like, I told Hikaru this. He thought it was the funniest thing. Oh my God. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty legendary story. Hikaru never mentioned the guy's like a chess player or was just, just, just. No, he just told me his name. And, you know, the guy was like, I don't know, 1800 or something. There were 22, 2300s there that I beat, but like this guy just killed me. And uh, I was like, damn, that's, uh, that's rough. Yeah, simuls are weird, right? Because you do you know in advance that you probably know everybody you're playing and how to. I, I didn't know them in New York, but they did put them in rating order, so I knew who the highest rated was. And this guy was like a third of the way down. That's funny. Wow. And he just, you know, he just played the King's Indian, probably got some sort of dubious position, but just threw everything forward and let me figure out how to deal with it in the simul, and I got crushed. So. That's... You know. That's uh, that's so funny. When you when you work uh, and do analysis for an event like the candidates, does it help you too? I, I imagine yeah, it does, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I whatever I didn't, whatever Hikaru hasn't played, I, I certainly hope I'm gonna, I, I will play myself when I get the chance to do so. Actually, that's what I was gonna ask. Like, is there any sense of this is my idea, this is your idea, this is our idea? Uh, really. I mean, so basically, like for Hikaru, I started doing work after the American Cup, and then I had the Prague Masters, and then right after that, he had the candidates. And basically what we agreed was Hikaru said, like, any, like, analysis you do for me, like, if you, if possible, please sit on it in Prague, and then once the candidates is over, you're free to play whatever the hell you want. And I said, fair enough. And, you know, and I managed to play other stuff in Prague just fine. Got you. Um, were you, you helping, like, primarily white or black pieces? I just, I, I don't know. White. Mostly, mostly white. white. I did a little bit of black, too, but really, it was mostly white. Okay, understood. Um, yeah, I know. I know you. Uh, you. You have. I don't know. Is your reputation theory monster? Like what it? Because like. It... Yeah, people often think of me as that. I mean, there was a time I think when I was a little bit better prepared than I am now, and I was also a worse chess player than I am now, and it sort of felt like this is a guy with you know, let's say twenty six fifty strength overall and twenty seven fifty openings, and that puts him in the twenty six eighties. But then. Uh, you only have so many hours in the day and I put a huge amount of work into, you know, doing this calculation training and stuff. Uh, and somehow my openings just sort of started to deteriorate a little bit. Cause when you see them as your strength, you don't worry as much. And then 
when my ideas sort of became depleted, uh, my openings didn't look as great. But for the most part, I think people see me as someone who's who's very well prepared. I mean, honestly, like in chess, I'm not naturally broad. I'm not that talented. But anything that can be learned or trained, I'm probably very, very good at. So like I'm actually I have quite a good knowledge of technical end games too and various pawn structures and stuff like this. Yeah, your chessable courses, specifically the D four one, I was yeah. watching Abhimanyu Mishra just absolutely decimate yeah, Europe. This was hysterical. I was watching it the whole time. Like, this is awesome. You know, Hoppy is so obviously just following my every single recommendation and just killing everyone. Yeah. And of course, it became harder when he became a reasonable grandmaster. So I played with like a 2600 types. And then, you know, he had to add E4 and then also play D4 in ways that I didn't recommend. But watching that, I was like, you know, yeah, this will get you to 2500 and beyond. So I was happy with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friends and I, as Abamanyu was just obliterating people in Hungary were just like every day my friend was like I'm pretty sure he's playing the Shanklin course and we would like yep. go chessable look through up oh, yep there it is and then he yep. was just winning in 25 moves with white every game like it was yeah uh, I mean it's, it's still got some poison to it I mean obviously like when you know when when a few years have passed and a bunch of people have played this stuff and won a bunch of games and it's not as novel anymore it's not going to pack the same kind of punch that it once did but still it's got some poison to it and i've played it in blitz and rapid events and gotten good positions against best players in the world you know i, I was proud of the work i did no i mean the, the stuff i've done with i mean i've done a lot of work as a trainer both with chessable and with with chessable uh with quality chess and with killer chess training that you know i've, I've been really happy with yeah the ecosystem for chess information now is terrifying i like I, as a as a person who's in it like if i was a if i was playing full-time i wasn't every day looking at what what youtube uh, algorithm friendly content i can put out and i was thinking of, of chess in a totally different manner i think i would love it a lot but it's terrifying when you're not fully prepared it just feels like yeah. you're studying for exams but you're not studying as much it as also narrows the gap a lot between you know top elite professionals and you know just some 2200 who has a bit of time and likes to study openings i mean it, it makes it much harder you know and if someone's really well prepared with white and doesn't want to take a ton of risks like if you look at my round two game at the olympiad even like this guy was you know 2150 i just never had a chance like you know it's like there goes five rating points he just never like i i even took some risks like and just got a bad position but like he prepared very well. He knew exactly where to play, exactly where to put his pieces. Okay, I was never wildly concerned about losing or anything, but like, it's just, I couldn't beat him. I, I couldn't even come close. I couldn't force him to make a tough decision. And yeah, okay, I drew with black, but like, like, damn, I wish I could have won. Yeah, that's a lot of rating I just lost. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, and I think I think Levon also. I mean, Levon in the first round had a had a draw. Do you do you guys ever talk to the like? people after the games it really didn't seem that way like from video yeah um, not a ton I, I did more in the past uh in covid eras they actually you up pretty fast i see massive tournaments but i don't know i mean also like everyone was just i mean like i, I don't want to say anything bad about havani sian he's he's had perfect board manner but you know if he had started talking to me after that game he might have gotten punched so yeah no you know, like, yeah Somehow the games I played, like as well, the game I had with Vakidov and with um, and with uh, with Dragon Solak, both games I'm just dead lost and managed to like get away. Like you don't really want to just start talking to them. Oh, this is how you could have beaten me. Like they're just gonna punch you, you know. So yeah. like that's actually that, that's I completely understand. We don't have to elaborate, but just yeah. for audience members, yeah, there's a very fine, there's a fine, delicate line you have to trend. Like if you want to talk after the game. Uh, yeah. 
Draw generally is okay unless one guy got massively swindled. Like you, you yeah. know, like if if you Why? really swindle yeah. someone, um, yeah. Um, do you, do you think that the if the higher rated player wins, they can initiate, or the lower rated player can initiate? But if the yeah. lower rated player beats the higher rated player, they shouldn't also start the conversation that they let they should let the higher. Yeah, player... usually not. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's rare for me to like. I guess nowadays. I mean, if I beat Magnus or something, I probably would just let him be. But like, there's nobody else who's that much higher than me. Like, you have to say low rated, low rated. If you're like 30 points below someone, yeah, no, yeah. You know, if there's a substantial, if if you deal someone a substantial upset, you probably shouldn't immediately start talking to them. You don't want to just go like jump around. Yeah, look at me, like right in front of them. It's not wildly respectful to do that. Yeah, kids do that. There's a lot of uh, kids. um, You're lucky. You don't have to. Play any kids speaking of uh playing what i always uh s- sign off with is uh like what's what's next so i i actually have no idea Wh- where are you playing what is the plan so i'm flying to st louis on wednesday for st louis rapid and blitz i don't know when this podcast will go live it might have already started um but yeah i'll play st louis rapid and blitz and then uh as of there's other events in st louis that i would love to play as of now i'm not invited i don't know if i i hope i get uh but there's the sinkfield cup after that as well as the 960 tournament. And then I have US Championship in October. And then I don't know after that. So you know, I might finally get some time off. It's been nonstop travel for quite a bit. I see. Uh, all right. Yeah, I was going to say September, but September is in 10 days. So that's that's very yeah. soon. Uh, is there? Have you ever played in the World Rapid and Blitz? Have you ever traveled for? I haven't. There were two years that I thought about playing. Uh, and both of those years, I got invited to Waikansei. And I decided it would be better to go visit uh, Jakob Bogart, my coach in the, in, uh, in the UK, um, and train for with him for like 10 days, get acclimatized to European time zones and really make sure that I'm you know calculating well. And I just thought that was more important. Both of those years were the years I wanted to play World Rapid and Blitz. Uh, so I guess that included last year even. Like it's just, you know, when I got invited to Tata Steel, I'm like, no, come on, I have to prepare for Tata. It's more important. But you know, assuming I don't get to play Tata this year, I don't have some massive tournament in January, I would like to go. I'm not a great Rapid and Blitz player. I think everybody knows this about me, but I'd like to get better. And, you know, playing events like that is how you get the practice in. Um, you also seem like you would probably prefer to spend time with family over the holidays. It always is this weird Christmas break yeah, thing. I don't know. I mean, I live in, I live 20 minutes from my parents. So when I'm home, I see them a fair amount. Okay. I'm not a wildly festive person. I... I don't need, you know, Christmas stockings or anything like that. Um, so I'm not a huge, like, holidays person in general. But, yeah, like, when I'm not playing, like, I haven't taken a vacation in 10 years. And the reason is when you travel, you know, 150 nights a year, the last thing you want to do is just travel more. Yeah, I like to see my parents. I like to see my dog. You know, it's it's kind of nice. Plus, I live in paradise on Earth in California. So, uh, yeah, it's really great. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's basically all I have. Uh, although I, I did want to ask questions about your dog, I guess, but oh, we, never, we, we, we never, we never got to that. Yeah. Have you, uh, who, who's your dog? Like, I'm always uh, so interested. First of all, he's, he's not really my dog. He's my parents' dog. He lives with them. They live about, you know, 15, 20 minutes away from me, but, uh, it sort of hurts their feelings a little bit, I think, but he likes me so much more than he likes them. And so actually I sold my condo in January with the hope of buying, or in February, with the hope of buying a house. Then when housing prices went up, the interest rates went up and the market crashed, 
that was a triple whammy that left me unable to do so. So now I've, I'm renting an apartment, but for like three months while I was still hoping to buy a house, I was living with my parents and they had this little separate guest area that I would stay in that was you know disconnected from the main house. It's not huge or anything, but it was fine for, and basically the first thing they would do in the morning is, you know, they'd let the dog out. And the first thing he would do is run over to my area and stay with me. He's like, I want to hang with Sam. And so, but no, he, he's great. His name is Tanner. He's a yellow lab. He's getting a little old. I think he's eight now. Uh, but he was initially actually trained uh, to be a guide dog for a blind person. And they had 10 levels of that. Uh, and if you pass level 10, you're, the dog is paired with, with a blind person uh, to be their guide dog. And Tanner flunked out at like level nine. So, you know, he was he was just, just barely not quite guide dog material, but he's so well behaved. And so he's just, and he's so happy. And so loves to play and loves to chase balls. And he's just, he's just great. That sounds like my dream dog, except he's currently eight months and an absolute lunatic. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we've, yeah. Uh, I've, I've made it very well documented how difficult it has been raising a puppy. Um, and I get promptly told I would never be able to raise a kid. And I go, thank God, because I don't want one. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, um, okay. That is a, uh, that's very, very adorable conclusion. I think to the yeah. episode, um, well, yes, am so I, mm -hmm. thanks so much for inviting me. I mean, I, I've not really been in touch with the whole, you know, chess, social media, streaming world, but you know, and of course I'm most interested in the, in the playing element, but you know, it's nice to, to branch out a little and, you know, I hope, uh, hope this goes well with your fans. Oh, I, I think it will. Uh, a lot of people enjoy watching your games. I think there's also people that might not know a whole lot about you uh, because we just kind of watch the chess and uh, there's also not a whole lot of interviews out there. So uh, yeah, you have my absolute blessing for uh, the chessable courses. Awesome. <laughs> um, I, like I think that. I've, I've done a very poor job going through them, but when I do, uh, they are they are fun to study. And um, why my students keep beating you? So. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think the reason I lose a lot of games is what you just described. I get a lot of nice positions, and then I, I go completely insane. Also, I'm playing ten year olds who are twenty four hundred. It's kind of yeah. yeah, it's kind of a losing strategy. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I'll let you know when the episode is out, and uh, best of luck in St. Louis. Yeah. Thanks. It was a pleasure to see you. As always, folks, if you made it this far, I want to say thank you for your continued support of my content. If you would like to find me, you know where my courses are, gothamchess.com. Uh, and uh, there are donation links on Twitch and on YouTube. I will see you right back here very soon in Gotham City with our next guest.